When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, the first of two special editions of Little Atoms, with shortlisted authors for this year's Welcome Book Prize. On Wednesday the 29th of April, the winner of the 2015 Welcome Book Prize will be announced. And I'm delighted to say that Little Atoms is covering the prize again this year. What you're about to listen to is the first of two special editions of Little Atoms, and coming up are interviews with shortlisted authors Miriam Taves, Scott Stossel and Sarah Moss. Miriam Taves was born in 1964 in the small Mennonite town of Steinbach, Manitoba. She has published four novels and a memoir of her father, and is the recipient of numerous literary awards, including the Governor General's Award, the McNally Robinson Book of the Year Award, twice and the Rogers Writers' Trust Fiction Prize. Her latest novel is All My Puny Sorrows, which is shortlisted for the 2015 Welcome Book Prize. So, Miriam, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. Oh, thank you for having me. Can you describe for us what the story of All My Puny Sorrows is about? It's about two sisters, and um, they're in their 40s, and one of them very much wishes to die. The oldest sister, who's an accomplished concert pianist, is um, suicidal, and um, the younger sister very much wants to keep her alive, and that's a central conflict in the story. Now, the key thing to know about this story is it's very, very autobiographical, isn't it? It is, yes. Yes, my my sister uh, committed suicide in 2010 after a number of attempts, and my father also did in 1998. So it's something, obviously, the subject of suicide is, is something that I think about a lot and that um, figures into my work, and and especially so in this book. And like you say, it's this book, All My Puny Sorrows, is, is very autobiographical. Um, I didn't think that I would write anything, actually, at all after my sister died in 2010. But eventually, after a few years passed, I realized that I needed to and that and that I would, and so that's when I started writing the book. I said in the introduction that you you wrote a memoir about your father, Swing Low, A Life, it's called, and that is about his, his life and his suicide. So why do it in a novel this time? Well, when my father died, that was the first time that anybody that I knew had committed suicide had killed himself. And I, it was a concept, obviously a concept that I knew of, but just never had crossed my mind that something like that could happen. And and it hadn't occurred to any, any of us in our family that this was something that could happen. We knew that he was very depressed and had suffered from depression and, and um, bipolar disorder for, for most of his life. He was diagnosed at 17. Um, it was called manic depression then, but has since come to be called bipolar disorder. And, and um and he had gone through some really hard times and, and uh, it just never had occurred to us that he would kill himself. And so after he did, uh, and there was no indication, there were no previous attempts there was that he didn't talk about it. Um, there was just nothing that would have us believe that that's what he was planning to do. And so after he died, I had just so many, so many questions. How could this have happened? Why did this happen? And I was reading absolutely everything that I could get my hands on in terms of suicide and, and mental illness and, and depression and, and, you know, survivor's guilt and all of those things. And basically, I thought that I had wanted to write about his life and not just focusing on the fact that he suffered from mental illness and that he killed himself, but, you know, but the, but the happier, you know, normal parts of his life as well. 
So with all of those questions that I had in mind, I decided that I would basically write the memoir, the so-called memoir, from his point of view. And I thought, okay, if I can get into my father's head, then I can come closer to understanding why he did what he did. And so for me at that time, it made sense to write that book that way. And so everything that happens in that book happened in his life. It's nonfiction in a sense. And yet, of course, because I'm writing it from his point of view, you could say that it's fiction as well. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there are, there are other books like this. And what do we call them? I don't know. But in this case, it's been labeled a memoir. Then after my sister died in 2010, I, of course, had come a little bit closer to understanding why and how. Uh, so I didn't have those, I didn't have those questions weren't the kind of prominent thing going on in, on in my head. Um, I was more concerned with understanding or at least dealing with the notion of, of first of all, of, of assisted suicide, of understanding what it means to love somebody who wants to die. What are our obligations, our responsibilities in that context? What are that person's rights? What should they be entitled to? I know that if I think only of my sister and think if there was a way that she wouldn't have had to have died alone and violently, then why couldn't have, that have been made available to her. She had very, very clearly expressed her intentions and um, and her wish to die. And there was no surprise when she was successful. So, uh, so I thought I wanted to talk about that and deal with that subject in, in my fiction. And I also wanted to kind of touch on what it means to survive afterwards, to go on living. I wanted it to be a book about, about love, about, I wanted it to be hopeful. I wanted it to be a kind of living, breathing document to, to survival, really, and to choice. And for me, it was easier to create a fuller picture. And this is, you know, this is a trope, a cliche within literature, as I'm sure you know, you, you know, you fictionalize something to, to get closer to the truth. And so I chose to write it, to call it fiction, even though, you know, this fiction, this so-called fiction, this novel is so autobiographical and the non-fiction, the memoir, you know, is, is kind of fictional. So they sort of, they go together and yet are shelved differently in stores. It's a question that obviously in any form of fictionalized autobiographical novel, the question that is raised is how autobiographical. And um, the sister, Yoli, that's based on yourself, she, you know, she gets up to some interesting stuff in this book. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, the character of Yolandi, Yoli, is, um, you know, I, I want to say a more messed up version of me, but probably not even, probably just as messed up, <laughs> and with the same kind of chaotic life. I mean, I too have, um, you know, I've been through divorce. I'm, I'm very happily now ensconced with my new partner, but I have my kids aren't teenagers anymore. Um, but I've, I've had teenagers. I've, I've, you know, I've sort of struggled in, you know, in the right the writing life and and just all of the things that Yolandi is is going through and then all of those kind of very typical things that a middle-aged woman often faces and and uh, the more unique thing that Yolandi is you know is struggling with her biggest challenge of course is trying at the very beginning of the novel to keep to do whatever she can to keep her sister alive to somehow make her want to live and to keep her alive and she's desperate and at a certain point in the book, she starts to think about about those things that I mentioned earlier, about about what, what our responsibilities are when we love somebody who wants to die, who's sane, who's clear-minded, who says, this is what I want and I need you to help me, please. What do we do in those circumstances? And, and Yolandi begins to think about that. And, and that was exactly the situation that I was in uh, with my own sister after several attempts um, with her, I knew, you know, we all knew that there was a 99% chance that she would be successful given the opportunity. And, and my own sister had asked me to take her to, to one of these clinics in Switzerland. And, and um, I, at the time, I mean, that just seems impossible. It just seems untenable. It just seems like absolutely not. Of course not. How can I, how can I do that? I want you to live. I need you to live. I want you to want to live. But then, you know, I, I started thinking differently. You know, Andy started thinking differently, but of course I didn't think quickly enough. I was too late and um, my own sister died violently and alone. And, uh, and I, and I didn't, I didn't take her to the clinic, and that was the one thing that she had begged me to do. And, and so Yolandi, the character, is, has the same struggle. While you were writing this, and certainly since it's been published, that assisted suicide debate has, has sort of heated up in Canada a bit. Oh, it sure has. Yeah, no, I mean, there, there's... Um... Uh, a conversation, an ongoing conversation now, and has been for a while. It's something that I think most Canadians, you know, agree that 
that it's humane and that it's compassionate and that there needs to be some kind of um, option for people who are, you know, who, who choose to die. And of course, there has to be all sorts of checks and balances and, and, and things taken into consideration. And, and there is resistance to it, of course, particularly from religious groups. And I understand that and, and appreciate that. So it's very, very complicated. But here in Canada, the law recently, um, the Supreme Court of Canada actually threw out the, the old law, making it illegal to assist with suicide for doctors. And so now, and that just happened very, very recently. And so now Parliament and, and the various provinces, government have a year to implement this new ruling from the Supreme Court of Canada. So it's going to be very interesting to see how that all pans out. I'm author I. Miller. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. I want to say as well, just talking about writing a novel rather than writing it as a memoir, although of course and I haven't read the memoirs, but the novel is for a book about such a, not only a, a powerful subject, but a very personal subject. It's really funny. And so, I mean, I guess if you were writing a, a non-fiction version, that would have been more difficult. Well, yeah, absolutely. I think that, I think, I think it would have been more difficult because I find a most relaxed writing fiction. I find that funny stuff or the, the comedy of it comes to me more easily when I'm writing when I'm writing fiction, the opportunities, you know, there's just so much more room and space for, for imposing one's own, uh, you know, mindset or uh, outlook um, uh, into the narrative. The other, the other thing is, too, I mean, I, I was really, really um, concerned with the tone of the book. I didn't want to I didn't want to put readers off. Of course, the book is about depression and suicide. I mean, these are dark, depressing subjects, and 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 a lot of people are afraid of them. I am to a certain degree, and and um, so I, when I when I was writing the book, I just thought, okay, the tone here is so 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 important. I want to do justice to credence to the very seriousness of the topic, of course, and to the pain that so many people experience when they are suffering from that that kind of despair. And yet, I want it to also to in a sense, honor the funny lives that my sister and I had with each other, the humor that ran kind of throughout everything with us in my family, in our family, that it was important, that it defined us in a certain way. My sister was the funniest person I've known. She made me laugh harder than anybody. It's, it, you know, I wanted her, you know, in my thoughts, I could think, okay, I'm going to create this scene. And, and uh, even though it's so dark and sad, you know, maybe this would be the, I mean, maybe this would be the thing that would make her laugh, you know, were she able to read it. And so, so that was absolutely essential that, that there was that, you know, the, that they go hand in hand, the, the funny and the sad throughout. And then I wanted my readers to feel confident that they could come with me through this book, through these dark subjects and, and come out at the end in a, in a lighter place where there was some light, some hope. I want to talk about the title, All My Puny Sorrows. It comes from a Coleridge poem, which is the poem itself is about, is about the death of his sister. It also plays a part in the story, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. Um, that's right. The, I mean, the, All My Puny Sorrows is, is uh, like you say, the line from the Coleridge poem. And, um, and, and I'm paraphrasing here. I haven't read it in a while, but, um, you know, something, something about Coleridge writes something like, <laughs> um, you know, it's only, only a sister, uh, you know, it's only, it's only a sister that you can pour out all your, all your puny sorrows to and still have them heard and, and acknowledged. And, and, um, and like you say, he's just lost his sister, but in the book, Elfrida, the older sister, kind of uses that as her, her stamp, you know, her, <laughs> her logo in a way and goes around town, around their hometown, writing AMPS, which, of course, acronym for all my puny sorrows. And, um, and she also believes that, you know, that Samuel Coleridge would most definitely have been her boyfriend if he had been born at the right time or if she had been born at the right time. And um, so that's, you know, and so, and so she goes around the town. And, of course, everything that Elfrida and Joey and her, their entire family do, almost everything in that town is met with disapproval by the, the church elders, it's a Mennonite community, very conservative, fundamentalist, religious community. And the Von Reason family is, doesn't follow rules easily. Yeah, I wanted to talk about the community. I mean, it, that's the community you come from yourself, obviously. And, and it's, it's something as well as this subject matter, the community and the place. That's sort of, you know, the small town Manitoba place, um, East Village, as, as it's called in the book, uh, are things that feature throughout your work. So, yeah, so for, for a British audience who are not familiar, who are the Mennonites? 
Well, the Mennonites are, they're very much like the Amish. Um, they began, the Mennonites, in, um, in, the, in the 1500s in Holland. They, they came from Holland, and so their, their last name is Von Riesen. That was basically the, the family's name is Von Riesen, which was my mother's mother's maiden name. They were a breakaway sect, um, basically led by this guy named Menno Simons. And their thing, their credo was that they would be in the world, but not of the world. And so, so the two kind of main tenets of the, of the Mennonite faith are adult baptism and, and pacifism. And um, they, a lot of Mennonites have been persecuted, you know, throughout history, and they've been exiled and have been on the run, moving from place to place to place. Certain governments in certain places will give them some kind of land. Okay, you can go to this kind of, you know, crappy little piece of land and farm it and stay away from everybody and do your own weird thing, but don't bother us. And then something will change and there'll be some revolution or whatever it is, and they'll be kicked out and have to be on the move again. So anyway, so my group of Mennonites, came from, obviously from Holland, where they all came from, but then, you know, a few hundred years later, from Russia. So there are Russian Mennonites, and there are Swiss Mennonites, and there are German Mennonites, and et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and then they came from Russia to Canada and settled in, where they were given land. There was a deal made by Catherine the Great and the Canadian government, and they were given this deal, this land, kind of very inhospitable land in, in the central part of Canada, and, uh, and they could farm it. So that's, uh, so that's where my grandparents came, and that's where I grew up and, and where I lived in this very, and it's a very, a very conservative Mennonite community. There are different types of Mennonites who you can tell they're Mennonites by the way they dress, long dresses for the women and hair, long hair and braids and hats for the men and, and that sort of thing. And those are the very old order Mennonites. My group of Mennonites just dress like mostly <laughs> like everybody else. Um, so you couldn't really tell just by looking, but if you would have come to my hometown, you know, you would have you would have understood that there was a very strange and, and fundamentalist group of religious people living there. Writing this novel and writing the memoir and you know touching on depression and other aspects of your work are obviously ways for you to work through the things that have happened and to deal with them yourself i mean what has the what has the reception to this novel been from other people well the reception has been very um positive here i've been on the road with it in a way um touring it and promoting it and going to festivals and readings and things like that and before the book came out i had you know i'd kind of made this plan with myself that i would do whatever i could to talk about it and and you know and say yes to just about everything because i so wanted to to tell the story i wanted the story to be to be out there and and again to be a part a tiny little part of that conversation about the topics that we were talking about before for, um, depression and suicide and assisted um, death and dying and so so I've met so in the course of doing that over the last year I've met so many people and so many people with similar stories to mine to my sisters to my families and that's been incredibly rewarding very very sad and hard to hear of course but but also you know when we write books we hope that we have a that connection with with our readers even even if we don't necessarily need them so so the reception has been uh, very very positive and and also uh, you know, I haven't really received a lot of backlash from religious groups either who may or may not be opposed to some of the, the themes in the book. Now, I would finish off ask you what you're going to do next. What I really want to know is when are we going to see your rodeo novel? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, that you and thousands of others are waiting. <laughs> no, that's not true. Actually, nobody's waiting for the rodeo novel. Um, yeah, that's that's a good question. Yeah, you know, I have a couple of writer friends here, and they keep saying, "Look, if you're not going to write it, I will." You know, <laughs> and, and I keep saying, "Yeah, just go for it." You know, <laughs> so maybe there'll be this a kind of you know like a ton of rodeo novels coming out of Canada in the next little while. Just none of them will be mine. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I do kind of like rodeos, even though they're very politically incorrect. And I used to be a barrel racer as a kid, so I have this fond, nostalgic kind of memory of, you know, horses and horse shit. <laughs> what is barrel racing? I, I did see that on your Wikipedia page. I don't know what barrel racing is. <laughs> So barrel racing is like you're on a horse, you're not on a barrel, <laughs> but there are three barrels set up and then you're timed. It's an individual thing and you're just timed and you have to go flying around these barrels in a certain pattern and, and uh, you know, make really tight corners and that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. 
Finally then, what does it mean to you to be shortlisted for the Welcome Prize? Oh, it's a huge honor. It's amazing. I mean, I've read, I haven't read all of the other books. I've read some of them and I intend to, to read all of the other books. And, and they're just, I mean, to be with this group of people is astonishing uh, to me to be to be picked and then to be um, with these writers. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's just a huge honor. And, and uh, I really am really, really looking forward to meeting some of these other writers and, and talking, you know, the subjects. There's such a range of different subjects. And uh, so, yeah, it's a, like I say, it's an honor and I'm, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it. I've been talking to Miriam Taves. We've been talking about her book, All My Puny Sorrows. Miriam, thank you very much for telling me about it. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Christopher Bolin. Go and read some great new journalism and explore the interview archive at littleadams.com. Scott Stossel is the editor of The Atlantic magazine and the author of the New York Times bestseller, My Age of Anxiety, Fear, Hope, Dread and the Search for Peace of Mind, which was shortlisted for the 2015 Welcome Book Prize. So Scott, thank you very much for talking to me today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. How would you describe the book? Well, it's it's sort of a mixture of memoir uh, of my own experience, lifelong experiences and struggles with anxiety and anxiety disorders, but I try to weave that together. It basically use myself as a case study from which I can jump off and talk about the culture, uh, intellectual history, and culture and science of anxiety. And I initially had actually set out to write a book that didn't have very much of me in it at all. I, I thought I would do sort of more of an academic uh, book of research into the history and, and, and culture and science uh, of anxiety, and it would just be inflected a little bit with my own experiences. But as I worked on the book, sort of guided by both my uh, editor and my psychotherapist, they kept saying, well, put more of yourself into the book. So um, in the end, it really is kind of a memoir of what I've been through uh, over you know, my 45 years uh, on Earth, struggling with this and trying different modes of treatment. Um, uh, but as I say, using my own narrative as a as a kind of jumping off point to talk about what cutting edge treatments are today, how different eras uh, throughout history have conceptualized anxiety in different ways, um, some of the philosophical questions that attend to you know is anxiety a you know spiritual condition or a medical problem or a psychological issue or all all of the above, um, and and basically to take me where my curiosity and where I hope the reader's interest leads. Let's, in very general terms then, talk about what you mean by anxiety, because that sounds sounds on the surface like a, a daft question, but it's quite a difficult thing to pin down. And indeed, it's really quite recently that it's been even categorized by the medical establishment as a, as a sort of category of mental illness, isn't it? That's right. I mean, it didn't officially exist. The anxiety disorders uh, didn't exist before 1980. Um, when they were written into uh, the American Psychiatric Association's um, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, third edition, which came out that year. Um, and before that, you know, what are now known as anxiety disorders had been called you know, neuroses, using kind of a Freudian nomenclature. And you know, one of the things that was interesting to me, uh, I mean, we all have kind of a general sense of what we think anxiety means um, as a kind of layman's term. Uh, but when I set out to try to write about it, obviously I wanted a precise definition, and I found that you know there there are so there really isn't one, or or on the other hand, there are so many different ones depending on what kind of specialist you ask. Um, in the end, what I kind of landed on is, I mean, obviously this thing we call anxiety um, has existed in human nature and in humans from the beginning of human time, and you can read ancient case studies from the Greek physician Hippocrates uh, in the 4th century BC or the Roman physician Galen in the 2nd century AD and they're not using the term anxiety but they are describing clinical cases that would today very clearly be described as uh, anxiety disorders but I, I sort of end up borrowing um, you know from Darwin and, and Darwin says that anxiety is anticipation of future suffering and you know when we talk about you know the difference what's the difference between say fear and anxiety and you know Freud had a diff set of definitions that kind of differentiated you know, fear is a normal 
physiological and psychological response to real actual danger, you know, a lion that's confronting you on the street or, a, or in the jungle or a mugger that's confronting you, um, and then you respond appropriately, whereas anxiety is uh, an emotion and a set of physiological reactions that are either in response to something that is actually not objectively dangerous or the response is disproportionate to the threat. And it can be either acute, like in a panic attack, uh, or it can be kind of more uh, like rumination, just constant worrying about um, future uncertain events. And, um, you know, but, but anxiety is related to fear in that, it, you know, really what the anxiety response, what a panic attack is, is, is the fight or flight response gone awry, which is, an, again, a normal evolutionarily adaptive response to being in genuine danger. You want when you're confronted by a member of the enemy tribe or in real danger to have the blood flow away from your digestive system to the large muscles in your arms and legs and your you know pupils to dilate so your perception increases and you know, prepares you to fight or to flee. That's adaptive when you're in real danger. When you're sitting in your office or on a subway or in an airplane or on a date, that's when it becomes um, miserable and debilitating and not adaptive at all. I want to talk a little bit about how how your own experiences of anxiety manifest themselves. But to get into that, you um, at the beginning of the book, you list a a series of often common phobias that that you that you happen to suffer in. It's a long list, but things like you know claustrophobia and agoraphobia and fear of flying. Um, but there's one there, turophobia, which I'd not come across before. So can you tell us what that is? Yes, that is that's an unusual one. It's uh, a phobia of cheese, and I have uh, ever so often will run somebody else who suffers from it, but it is pretty rare. And that's it, it's somewhere between a classic phobia and an acute aversion. And I think it re- relates to another one of my slightly more idiosyncratic uh, but still common phobias, which is a metaphobia, which is the fear, uh, sort of pathological fear of vomiting. Which actually, you know, in the age of the internet, researchers are starting to realize that actually that maybe is frequent as the most fifth most common phobia. And I, I've heard from a lot of people in the U.S. And, and in the U.K. that after reading my book, you know, they're like, oh, I thought I was the only person who had this. I didn't even know the, the word for it, but um, it's, it's a metaphobia. In, in my in, in sort of family lore, uh, there was this occasion when I was five years old and I was about to get on an airplane and my sister's two years younger than I am, and she ate a piece of cheese off the airport floor. And my mother, who, like me, is sort of a germ-phobe and a, and a metaphobe, made a big deal about the fact that, oh, she's going to get sick from eating this piece of cheese because it's probably contaminated with germs. And sure enough, uh, you know, a couple of days later, my sister uh, came down with a stomach virus, and I remember this quite vividly. So I, one theory that various psychotherapists have ventured, which seems plausible to me, is that somehow um, in my head this linked, you know, cheese to fear of vomiting, and then, you know, I think that you know, certain kinds of cheeses actually smell vaguely like you know, emesis. Um, so somehow these things may have gotten linked in my mind. But Or it may be some completely weird, sublimated, Freudian explanation for why I, I, I am terrified of cheese. I'm Emily Mayhew. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Let's widen this out then and talk about how anxiety has affected your life. Well, it started when um, you know, I talked about the book. I was first officially diagnosed when I was 10 years old. But it had, and I, you know, before that, I, I wouldn't have known how to describe my you know, affliction, as it were. But you know, I was I was a very nervous kid, and um, you know, from a very young age, I had acute separation anxiety. And whenever my parents, whenever I was separated from my parents, I was convinced that they had died in a car crash, or that they'd run away and abandoned me, or that they were you know, space aliens who'd gone back to their planets after conducting whatever experiments they were conducting on me. And I would actually, you know, every night when I would come home, I literally uh, paced grooves into the rug of my carpet in my childhood bedroom because I would just pace in circles, you know, in these paroxysms of, of misery, convinced that they died. And then around that same time was when I developed the Emetophobia, the, the the fear of vomiting, and so I would frequently, you know, anytime someone at school got sick or if a relative were sick, I would just, you know, be almost non-functional for. I did all kinds of research into, you know, the average period of incubation, and I would worry um, for that entire period that I was about to get sick, um, and spend a lot of time in the nurse's uh, office convinced that I was sick. So anyway, then when I got um, into young adulthood, I mean, this is again sort of a classic textbook unfolding of of anxiety disorders, but I developed. Uh, you know, sort of panic attacks and elements of social anxiety, and you know, so by the again, starting when I was, I guess, when I was in seventh grade, I had kind of a breakdown where I literally, you know, couldn't 
I, I was so afraid of going to school and, uh, that my parents would have to physically, you know, wrestle me into my clothes, force me into the car. And so that was when I started medication. Uh, this was in the early 80s, and they put me on Thorazine, which at the time, um, it was, it's, it's really an antipsychotic that was considered a major tranquilizer and was prescribed for you know, severe anxiety, and also imipramine, which is a member of the tricyclic genre of antidepressants. And those actually kind of stabilized me enough to keep me in school, but also kind of launched me onto a lifelong experience of kind of being a guinea pig. And, um, you know, many people who have suffered from anxiety, depression, or other um, psychiatric disorders have the experience of, um, you know, trying one drug combination and then another and then another. And, you know, it takes a while to find one that works. And then one that works for a while will then stop working. You have to try another one. And you have to go through the agony of, um, you know, sort of withdrawal from the one medication, side effects from the new medication. And, of course, People who are prone to anxiety overinterpret and maybe even overexperience or experience more acutely these side effects than somebody who didn't suffer from anxiety. So it, it can become kind of a painful ordeal. So what else is? Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So, I mean, apart from for people now, like right now, today's world, trying to be treated for anxiety disorder, apart from that huge combination, cocktail of various combinations of drugs, what other things can you do? What sort of, what other treatments are there? Well, the, the most, what, what research suggests are the most effective treatments in, in addition to, to various forms of medication are, you know, variants of what's known as cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, as they call it for short. And basically, there's sort of different strains, but w- w- what it involves, particularly in the treatment of anxiety disorder, is a mixture of exposure therapy, which is, what, in fact, what it sounds like, exposing yourself to the thing that you are phobic of. So if you have fear of heights, it means, you know, gradually going to higher and higher buildings and, you know, walking out on the balcony. If you have a fear of airplanes, it's first walking onto the airplane when it's on the ground and maybe going with the therapist and the pilot, you know, up in the air. So it's exposing yourself to the thing that you're afraid of and then doing what they call kind of cognitive retraining or reframing and, you know, learning how to adjust your thoughts uh, and to kind of reality test and, and reframe your cognition so that the thing um, that you're irrationally afraid of becomes not so so frightening. You know, a lot of studies show that this is as effective, if not more so, than medication at reducing the symptoms uh, of anxiety and reducing phobias. But it comes, you know, it's much uh, without side effects or the cost of buying medications. And for some people, you know, a fairly short course of cognitive behavioral therapy can be quite, quite effective. And then another mode of therapy that's becoming more common and more studied is, you know, emerges from kind of Eastern medicine, um, and that's, you know, mindfulness meditation. And there's all kinds of emerging studies from neuroscience that show that even novice meditators can, you know, increase their sense of well-being and reduce their level of anxiety and literally affect physical changes in their brain that you can see in an MRI scanner where the amygdala, which is kind of the seat of fear in your brain, literally shrinks when you meditate regularly. And, you know, the connections in your frontal cortex, which is kind of the reasoning part of your brain that can overcome the anxiety, grow more dense and interconnected. So those two are probably two of the most cutting edge. Um, And then there's all kinds of research on new drugs and other forms of talk therapy. But that's generally where I steer people who come to me if they're looking for advice. And there are, you've done the um, the exposure therapy that you talk about. There's there's various darkly comic sequences in this book where you attempt this therapy. So did you know? Did you find it successful? Well, uh, in the case you're uh, you're referencing, no, absolutely not. Um, 
And emetophobia is notably hard to treat with exposure therapy for, you know, whereas it's, it's pretty easy to, you know, if you're claustrophobic to go into tighter and tighter enclosed spaces or heights, you know, go to higher and higher buildings. You know, to confront your emetophobia, you actually, you know, some therapists say you have to actually vomit and then, you know, process the experience and learn that's not so terrifying. And so what I did, which is evidently fairly common, um, you know, first my therapist had me watch, they actually have, uh, if you had a video compilation of people in movies and TV shows vomiting, um, that I would have to, you know, sit there and watch and she'd ask me what my level of anxiety was. And then sometimes she'd actually have me do this, combine my fears, like I have a you know, fear of public speaking. So I would like be giving a talk to a bunch of graduate students while over on the side of the conference room, there'd be a loop of people vomiting playing. It was just a sort of surreal, absurdist tableau. But then it wasn't really succeeding in mitigating my anxiety. So she said, well, really what you have to do is make yourself vomit. So eventually I agreed to take Ipecac syrup, which is a, a medic, which makes you, is supposed to make you throw up. But I, I took a double dose of it and I felt incredibly nauseous and spent a couple of miserable hours in the basement of this uh, psychology center, um, you know, dry heaving into a, a toilet, uh, but never actually threw up. And um, it came out the other side of the, this experience, um, you know, more anxious than ever about throwing up. And the irony was that my psychologist who was with me through the whole ordeal, even there, was a, there was a psychologist and a nurse who were standing there with me in the restroom. The nurse eventually gave up and got frustrated and left. and said, I've never seen anybody um, take a cack and not, not vomit. And then my poor psychotherapist got so nauseated watching me retch, she ended up getting sick. Um, so as I say in the book, it's really ironic that the Ipecac that I took made someone else get sick. But th this is, I mean, this was sort of an extreme example, and um, you know, I subsequently learned that actually, you know, a disproportionate you know, or a surprising number of people who are severe emetophobes actually, you can find on the internet, you know, they took uh, Ipecac and didn't vomit because their will not to do so and their fear of doing so is so acute they can sort of resist it. So there are probably better ways of going about that kind of exposure and, and most kinds of phobias are, don't have that problem of needing to you know, make yourself do something like throw up. Where are we now with the science of what anxiety is, where it comes from? There's always been these sort of ongoing tussle between is it biological, is it psychological, is it a genetic thing, is it a nurture thing? And it's all, there's no firm conclusions, is there? It's all a bit of a mess, really, the science at the moment. Exactly. I don't think we'll ever, and I think it's a good thing, actually, that we'll never definitively untangle uh, the interrelationship between, um, you know, what quotient of anxiety or any element of our personality is genes versus environment versus upbringing versus, you know, luck and trauma and all that. But piles and piles of research that are accumulating in um, both sort of neuroscience and molecular genetics is really, really fascinating. And again, I don't think they'll ever reduce a given anxiety disorder or a given psychological trait to a single gene. But researchers are learning more and more about sort of constellation of genes that give rise to different temperaments and different sort of physiological processes in the brain that are associated with different emotions or temperaments. And as those develop, they're also developing, you know, it may be that we get better at tailoring uh, or, or knowing which medication works with which um, sort of genotype, which set of genes that you have. Um, and you, you know, there are already, you can get tests to see, you know, is you know, Prozac versus some other antidepressant going to be more likely or less likely to work for you than some other drug based on what we know about other people who have the variants of the genes that you have. But, you know, in the, so my, I mean, I guess I, I came into the book um, thinking that there was a strong genetic component to anxiety. I came away with an even stronger sense. I mean, I talk about my family history and then I you know, go through a lot of the research, but so, so that's kind of the foundation, but overlaid on top of that are all kinds of other things like what was, you know, Freud was right, you know, what was your early childhood like, what was your upbringing like, you know, have you been exposed to trauma, and then just kind of the luck of circumstances, you know, identical twins who have the same, exact same genetics, one of them has anxiety disorder, the other one is extremely likely to develop anxiety disorder and much more likely than, you know, two random people or even two non-twin siblings, but they're not guaranteed to have it. So there's clearly something more than genetics at, at work here that can kind of insert itself into how personalities and psychological kind of traits and disorders develop. Where are you now? Because, I mean, we're talking about a long list of anxiety disorders, but you're, you're a published author and, you know, you're the editor of a of a political magazine, which is obviously a, an incredibly stressful position to be in as well. So how, apart from the, you know, the various drug regimens or whatever that we've already sort of touched on, how do you deal with it day to day? 
it varies. I mean, you know, and like many people who have this, you know, I have good days and bad days and good stretches of, you know, months and, and bad stretches of months. And, you know, it correlates predictably with, you know, the level of external stressors in, in my life. You know, I do I continue to take medications which would help uh, keep it under control. And I've gotten much better at kind of titrating the dosages of, of, of benzodiazepines, which are short-acting kind of anti-anxiety medications. There's a certain irony. I mean, I, I originally got the idea to write a book uh, about my anxiety when my first book was coming out 10 years ago, which is a biography of um, Sergeant Shriver, who founded the Peace Corps uh, for President Kennedy here in the United States uh, in the 1960s. And I was terrified in 2004 when my book tour was looming that I was going to have to go and speak in front of large audiences and go on live TV. And I was just absolutely terrified, and, and, and that's when I um, sort of sought out multiple courses of therapy. So the irony is I ended up writing the book, and here I am rewarded, you know, 10 years later with another book tour. It's another version of exposure therapy. Well, I was going to say, exactly, the, the sort of uh, benefit has been that it was kind of a you know, protracted exposure therapy. When the hardcover came out in the United States last year, um, you know, I had to do all so many of the things that scare me. I was flying around and going on the radio, and, you know, I relied on medication, but it does, you know, as the exposure therapists and cognitive behavioral therapists tell you it gets easier with practice. And the difference this time was, you know, one of my fears before uh, with the first book and just in my life generally was always, you know, I, I like many people who suffer from, clearly from panic disorder, you know, was, was very good, better than I realized at hiding my anxiety. And I was terrified that my anxiety would be exposed. You know, if I had a panic attack, you know, while I was giving a lecture and had to run off stage, which actually has happened to me, but if it happened in a you know, high stakes venue or if I had a, you know, public breakdown, like I thought this would be humiliating and awful. But then having published a book that basically laid out all these fears and revealed my anxiety, I sort of preemptively outed myself. And so I sort of consoled myself with my most recent book tour by telling myself that if ever I did have to run off stage, I could just sort of yell out to the crowd, well, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry about this, just look at chapter four. Um, and they would explain, you know, exactly, uh, they would understand exactly what happened. So that, that actually did reduce my anxiety. And then just the process of kind of coming out as anxious and not having the world end, you know, did kind of, I think, lower my baseline level of anxiety a little bit. That said, you know, I do still struggle with it. And there's this kind of meta problem of, you know, people who have social anxiety, as I say, you know, you're afraid that everyone's looking at you and noticing that you're anxious and a lot of times they can't tell. But now, of course, I'm up on stage and in my head, I'm thinking, okay, everyone is looking at me because they know I'm an anxious person. They're seeing, they're looking closely like is, you know, sweat. Can they see the sweat beating on my upper lip? Can they hear the quaver in my voice? And of course, then you start thinking about that and you get more anxious and then more sweat does beat on your upper lip. And then your voice starts quavering and it's sort of this weird meta-anxiety. But again, doing it again and again is exposure therapy. It makes it easier. Just one more question then. What does it mean to you then to be shortlisted for the Welcome Prize? Uh, it's an incredible honor. Um, the success of the book generally, you know, I, there were times when I thought I would, many times, for a long time, when I thought I would never finish it and publish it, let alone have it come out and, and be generally well-received. And, you know, to have, uh, you know, even just to be on the shortlist with all these other tremendous authors and ec excellent books is just so, you know, it's, it's sort of a validation of a sort that, you know, I couldn't have dreamed of. So I'm incredibly honored and um, haven't cured my anxiety. But, you know, uh, on the day that I learned I'd been shortlisted, I was, you know, in a better mood and probably less anxious than um, I had been the day before. So uh, it's a great honor. I've been talking to Scott Stossel. We've been talking about his book, My Age of Anxiety, Fear, Hope, Dread, and the Search for a Peace of Mind. So, Scott, thank you very much for taking the time to tell me about it. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. Hannah Fry, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Sarah Moss was educated at Oxford University and is currently an Associate Professor of Creative Writing at the University of Warwick. She is the author of two novels, Cold Earth and Night Waking, which was selected for the Fiction Uncovered Award in 2011. She spent 2009 and 10 as a visiting lecturer at the University of Iceland and wrote an account of her time there in Names for the Sea, Strangers in Iceland, which was shortlisted for the 2013 RSL Ondarte Prize. Her latest novel, Bodies of Light, was published by Granta Books 
2014 and is shortlisted for the 2015 Welcome Book Prize. So, Sarah, thanks for talking to me today. A pleasure. How would you describe what the book is about? Well, it's about the first generation of women doctors in Britain who were being trained in the 1870s, mostly. But it's also about growing up as a daughter in an artistic household where the father's work is valued and where there's a tension between the father's commitment to art and the mother's commitment to social justice and about how daughters in particular might arrange themselves in relation to those two very driven but very different adult personalities. So let's talk about some of the characters then. So Alfred, Alfred Mobley, who is the father, he's a pre-Raphaelite painter. That's a world that we normally associate with a certain libertinism and the romantics. And his wife, who is, as you just described, his wife Elizabeth, is a you know a campaigner for social justice, for women's rights, and for the poor. But she's a evangelical woman who's incredibly driven and dogmatic. Let's talk about the tension between those two worlds. I mean, when you were researching this, did that sort of tension exist? Yes, I think so. And of course, it's not, I mean, that that marriage is inherently unlikely. But my experience even now is that a lot of marriages are inherently unlikely. The strangest people get together, even in a world of social networking and long premarital relationships. And particularly for the pre-Raphaelites who tended to be very interested in what women looked like and not necessarily very interested in what they thought. There are some totally disastrous marriages. And I was interested in in being a child of a disastrous marriage and growing up pulled into having two totally incompatible sets of expectations so that you're never really going to be sufficient because even if you please one parent, the other one will be gravely disappointed. And let's talk about, we'll talk about Alfred first then, who who he is, because I mean, as you just described, not only is he, you know, he's, 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 he's not really aware of his wife, but even more so, he has no idea really or, or no interest in what is happening to his daughters, does he? Some. I mean, he does, he protects them a bit from Elizabeth. The other thing about the pre-Raphaelites and social justice campaigners is that they have a certain amount in common. I mean, they're both rejecting the Victorian expansion of capitalism and urbanisation and the interest in factory-made stuff. Both of them are deeply suspicious of that desire to have more and more and more stuff and more and more and more money so you can have more and more stuff. And they're coming to it from very different points of view. Uh, one on aesthetic grounds because the stuff is horrible and one on moral grounds because we shouldn't be thinking about stuff. But they're both interested in simplicity and pairing back and living a kind of plain life. So the, there is, you know, on a, on a kind of aesthetic and political level, there's stuff in common there, even though it's realised for two very different sets of motives. And and Elizabeth, let's talk about how, well, how she has become the way she is, because as is often the case, Elizabeth was treated the same way by her own mother. Yes. And can't, at the beginning, you're supposed to be able to see that there's just this slight opening of a possibility that it could go a different way. Um, But she ends up replicating her own childhood, as very many of us do. She's been, well, interestingly, this bit was kind of inspired by Little Women, which I read as a child as being a book, well, a a nice, gentle book, you know, and they're they're feminists in, Louise Ralcott was a feminist and the the March Sisters are feminists. And rereading it when I was older and particularly rereading it as a feminist literary critic, you begin to realise that a lot of the feminism in that book is about internalising oppression and limits and learning to control yourself in ways that can actually be quite violent. I mean, Jo has to learn to control her temper. Amy has to learn not to want stuff, not to want nice food, not to want pretty dresses. Um, Meg nearly brings down her virtuous marriage over the desire for a pretty dress. It's a very harsh kind of feminism which functions by requiring women to internalise a kind of social violence. And that is to some extent where the British feminisms of the 19th century are also coming from. But the more I researched it, the more I could see how those pressures would drive you to that kind of self-destruction. Because one of the issues for a feminist woman in any period is that if you're interested in clothes and prettiness and enjoying things, material things of any kind... You're trivial and fluffy and selling out. But if you're not, then you're assuming a masculine role and you're denying all sorts of things. And there isn't really any space in that very theorised way of thinking for pleasure, you know, for doing what you feel like doing, because you're constantly thinking, do I feel like doing this because I've been socially conditioned to feel like doing this? Is it permissible for me to feel like doing this? And if you combine that with the evangelical Christian interest in self-examination 
and virtue and trying to subdue all of your worst urges, you end up in a position where you almost can't do anything because you're constantly checking with yourself about why you would want to do it and whether your ideological motives are okay. It's totally disabling. And that's also the experience of growing up afraid of a parent. You're not thinking about what you want. You're thinking about what they want. You're reading them. You're checking from the body language how they're likely to react to anything. So you end up very driven, very capable of huge levels of self-control but almost out of touch with your own desires and interests. And that's a very powerful position to be in. I mean, that's the position of somebody who can absolutely defy the Victorian patriarchy and become a doctor. But it hurts. And that's the, the journey that Ali, one of the one of the daughters, will take. And we'll come on to her in a moment. But just staying with Elizabeth for a bit. I mean, even, you know, beyond her upbringing, you know, she's a she's an evangelical Christian. She's a social campaigner. And the world that she throws herself into, the underworld of Manchester, of sort of workhouses and asylums and brothels, I mean, it's like a living hell. I mean, it, it's sort of all of her, all of her sort of fears realised. So tell me a little bit about that world and about researching it and what that was like. Well, I already sort of knew about it. I grew up in Manchester and went to a school which was founded by the Manchester Liberals in the 19th century. So materially, that world was absolutely around me as I was growing up. And I lived in a Victorian house, and so did almost everybody else I knew, because most of the housing in Manchester is Victorian. I went to school in Victorian buildings. When we went to the hospital, it was a Victorian hospital. When I went to the library, it was a Victorian library. So my sense of the Victorian city was quite strong. And of course, growing up in a place like that, you, in, you know, in primary school, you're always doing Manchester in the era of the Victorians, and then you do it again at GCSE and again at A-level. So I, I had quite a deep sense of that going back quite a long way. And then my academic interests are 18th, 19th century, and particularly romantic poetry and romantic era women's writing. And they were all people who were very engaged with social justice in the world of the city. So I don't think I discovered much that was new and shocking in researching this book. And I'm not sure I'd have dared to write historical fiction if I hadn't had that kind of deep, long-term familiarity with the period. But I think historical fiction is always at least as much a prophecy as a memory, and at least as much a warning as a kind of nostalgia. And while I was writing this book, I was hearing a kind of Victorian rhetoric about poverty. You know, it was when we were having the Strivers and the Skyvers rubbish, which is just the Victorian division between the deserving and the undeserving poor. We've got food banks again. You know, we have kids with malnutrition out on the streets. It didn't seem terribly far off a kind of reality to which we might be returning. So part of the book is a kind of furious warning. You know, things used to be like this. We used to be dependent on the goodwill of people who didn't have anything more urgent to do to feed children who were otherwise going to starve. And we're walking back into that. And nobody seems to be able to see that that's exactly where we were 150 years ago. I'm Marcus Chown, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Let's look at the daughters then. So there's May and Ali, and this the book really becomes Ali's story. But May Mobley is a character from your previous novel as well, Night Waking, which is, it's not a, that's a novel that's set in different time periods. This is a historical novel, so it's not like, you know, the, the, the second part of a trilogy or, or something. But let's talk about why you've done that. Why did you want to bring back the characters or concentrate on that family? When I wrote Night Waking has a split narrative between there's a present day one and then there's a kind of Victorian one running behind it. And I just knew a lot more about the Victorian family than ever made it anywhere near Night Waking. And one of the things I'm interested in Night Waking is the relationship between academics and the things they're researching and the things that they don't know, the things you never find out as an academic researcher. So in Night Waking, you only get the bit that the academic finds out, which is very little. But in order to write that very little, I had to research and learn and think through a whole lot more. I mean, you, know, you can't write about the bit of the iceberg that shows until you know what there is underneath. So the story just took shape towards the end of writing Night Waking it wasn't I mean my books are never planned in that sort of way they form and I find them and I'm interested in them but I don't set out and think next I'm going to write a book about 19th century social history which will be related to the previous book in the following ways it, it just kind of emerges as I read and think but I like the idea of constructing a parallel world and picking up minor characters so it doesn't matter at all it's for for readers who have read both the connection will be amusing and it's amusing for me. But it doesn't really matter. I could equally well have produced a different Victorian family with a similar kind of history. But having done that for a second time then, will you will you continue to do that? Do you think it's something that's that's worth exploring more? 
my next book, Science for Lost Children, which will be out this summer, is is another book about Ali. And it picks up more or less where Bodies of Light leaves off. I mean, it's not exactly a sequel. It's a standalone, but it, it's, it's the same characters in another place. So... Ali becomes part of a group of women who were the first doctors, basically, the first people to be allowed to call themselves doctors. So that was, there was basically, a, it's, it's a sort of parallel with a, with a, a real group of women that, that existed in the late Victorian period. So tell us about the reality. Let's talk about that group of women, who they were and, and, and about that world. It was part of, well, feminism in the 19th century as now was quite often seen as a middle class movement about the fulfilment of middle class women. And one of its early projects was to claim a professional life for women and to begin to open up some equality of opportunity. I mean, it takes a very long time to get to full equality, but that was one of the things that 1870s feminists were trying to do. And medicine was important, I think, for two reasons. And one of them is the intimacy of it, that women really wanted to be able to see women doctors. But I think medicine opened to women so much earlier than, for example, law, because there were both radical and conservative arguments for women doctors. The radical argument is that women have been healers since time immemorial, and there's plenty of evidence for medieval woman healers, and that women are equally capable and should be allowed equality of opportunity in that area. But the reason that it opened to women was that there was also a conservative argument, which was that women should not be obliged to expose their bodies to male doctors and that modesty dictates that a woman should have access to a female physician. So what the really important one for medicine is the conservative and radical arguments putting pressure on the same place, which is the medical schools to admit women. But even so, it took years and some horrible, horrible things were done. The University of Edinburgh turned out, it wasn't even that they wanted to be open to women, it was just that there was a loophole in their constitution that referred to person rather than man, which meant that when they got almost taken to court over it, they had no legislative basis for refusing to admit women. So there were seven women, they became known as the Edinburgh Seven, who fought their way into Edinburgh Medical School. And they were threatened with rape. They had feces thrown at them, their windows were broken, all by other medical students and members of the faculty. They weren't, they were sometimes physically thrown out of lecture theatres. They were bullied beyond imagining. We, we think misogynist bullying is a phenomenon of Twitter and the internet, but it's really not. It was going on physically at that era. And they kept going. And some of them got top marks, which of course annoyed the people who opposed them even more. They weren't allowed to attend some lecture courses because it was thought that they would distract the men. So they had to buy in private teaching to cover that ground. They were allowed to take the exams and they passed and several of them did extraordinarily well. But then they weren't allowed to graduate because it turned out that the bit of legislation that said you couldn't stop women getting into the medical school allowed you to refuse to let them graduate. So they'd done the training, they'd brought in a lot of it themselves, they'd stood up to seven years of relentless, relentless bullying. They'd taken and passed their exams and they still, after all that, they still weren't allowed to call themselves doctor and they couldn't legally practice in the UK. And even beyond that, I mean, it's it's often you might think these stories are of these are the brave pioneers. And then after that, it becomes then there are women doctors, you know, but that's that's, of course, not really what happens, is it? No, um, most of them had to go off to I mean, America had medical schools that were open to women from the 1850s and 60s. So some of them went to America and qualified there and came back. Um, the ones in Paris had been open to women for a while, and Dublin. So there were places women could go and qualify and then come back. But of course, the numbers who could do that are tiny. And then it was really the next generation, which is where Ali comes in, had the London Hospital for Women, which was a really a women-only medical school. There were some men teaching at it. And that was, that was when women were able to teach women and begin to pass on the expertise. It was still very difficult for things like surgery. You know, there was one woman surgeon. It just takes quite a long time. Let's talk about researching that world and that story. I mean, is, was this a story that was forgotten or was it? is there a lot of memoirs and documentation about those times? There's surprisingly little. I mean, you know, there's a group of academics who know about it, of course, as about almost anything. There wasn't much. There were a couple of memoirs, not always. A, there's only one of the, that very early generation, Mary Sharleep, who, I mean, that's interesting because she starts off in India and comes back to England and trains and goes back to India and comes back. So that's part of a different 
well, that's part of an imperial and colonial narrative as well as a feminist one, which is interesting because there we have feminism on the side of imperialism and colonialism. There wasn't much. I had to reconstruct it out of fragments, really. I read a lot of 19th century surgical textbooks because it's quite easy to get to what people actually do. You know, what would Ali be able to see? What would her hands be doing? What books would she be reading? But for the environment of the women's medical school, there were two, three fairly fragmentary memoirs which in some ways is nice. I mean, for me, fiction begins where history goes quiet. So once I'm sure that I know where history goes quiet, then I'm confident. Finally, then, what does it mean to you to be shortlisted for the Welcome Prize? Oh, I'm delighted, of course. It's it's wonderful. And it's a very strong shortlist. I mean, anybody would be flattered to find themselves in that company. And particularly because I'm, I mean, across several books, I'm interested in writing and particularly in how, I mean, Alfred is a painter. I'm interested in the relationship between painting and medicine and writing. As a pre-Raphaelite painter, he's looking at bodies in one way and his daughter is looking at bodies in a different way. And then, of course, I'm writing into that space between the artistic and the medical gaze. It's great. It's it's a brilliant thing to be on that shortlist. So I've been talking to Sarah Moss about her book, Bodies of Light, which is shortlisted for the 2015 Welcome Book Prize. So, Sarah, thank you very much for telling me about it. Thank you. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.